Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Ian Lusted, an ASX-listed oil and gas company uh, called Astras Oil and Gas. He talks to us about their business model uh, and how he hopes uh, that will attract strategic partners in the near future. Uh, we look at their cash position uh, and indeed some of the assets that they've got. Uh, if you want our thoughts and opinions on that, the conversation, the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed company reports and analysis. There's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities, including oil and gas. Uh, we've got training courses on there to help you with the diligence process. We have uh, we have done summaries of interviews to save you some time because we know you're busy. And if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, safe and friendly environment, uh, free from judgment, trolling and abuse, uh, go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We hope you like it. Ian, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Matt. How are you? Not too shabby. So where are you speaking from? I'm calling from Perth in Western Australia. Um, and... Uh, Later in the evening here as the sun's starting to set. Very nice. You don't sound like a local. Uh, no, I'm a Brit originally, but I was lucky enough to marry in Australia and got to move down here back in 2003. Oh, well said, well said, well said. That's well phrased, actually. You get brownie points tonight for that. <laughs> oh, hopefully. Yeah. We'll I'm able to make up for a deficit. <laughs> We've so much to learn. Uh, well, fantastic. So how are things in Perth? We, I spoke to someone in um, uh, Sydney this morning who's desperate to get back to Perth, but can't. It's been an outbreak. There has been yet another small outbreak, uh, this time in Queensland, and Western Australia has shut its borders again. So uh, we, we sit somewhat isolated, obviously, uh, for our own protection, um, and uh, we are now a little island within an island. I hear, I hear it's a very disappointing six people who've been infected. It's embarrassing, quite uh, frankly. Uh, compared to others, yes, we've, we've got work in front of us, indeed. <laughs> it is, it's ludicrous. I think, I think we're up to 34,000 this week. There you go. That's what you're uh, yeah. towards. No, no, I mean, we are incredibly, I mean, joking aside, we're incredibly fortunate and we've taken full advantage of the island status. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we look out at the rest of the world and just count our lucky stars we're here. Well, I think I think this island is very jealous of your islands because you seem to be handling it a lot better than us. So, yeah, congratulations on that one. Well, look, we are here today to talk about an oil and gas company. It's a slightly unloved sector for the last five years. Um, so why don't you kick off, give us a one minute overview and then I'll pick it up with some, some questions from there. Yeah, of course. So Australis is a listed ASX company. Uh, it was formed back in 2014, listed in 2016. Today, we believe we are the sole owner of the largest delineated, appraised, but undeveloped, unconventional oil development in the USA. It's as a result of a strategy that we put in place um, on formation of the company, and we've executed systematically over the course of the last seven years. Um, and we feel that we've now put ourselves in a position to take advantage of basically turning circumstances and evolving circumstances in the US uh, where we'll look to try and realize value out of that asset. You, Big when, statement. It, it, yeah, and we're going to come back to that, believe me. 20, 2014, you started the company. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you have timed it worse? I think we could have timed it ideally, actually, for what we were trying to do. So uh, maybe if I can. So we... Um, we set up the precursor to this it was a company called Aurora Oil and Gas. Again, in some ways, a very similar business model. That was formed back in 2005, and it went into an unconventional play at the time that nobody had heard of in the US called the Eagleford Shale. 
We think to this day we drilled the second horizontal well within that play. So we're there right at the very beginning. And uh, for the first three or four years, it was a uh, unloved and uh, uh, unfollowed play. And then as the US unconventional liquid story started to take off in 2009, we were able to sequentially bring in partners. And ultimately, we sold out of Aurora at exactly the right time, just prior to the oil price crash in June of 2014, for a value of $2.6 billion. So we've taken the company from a market cap of $30 million to $1.8 billion when we actually exited. So it was a great journey to go on. We learned a lot about what to do well and other things that we perhaps could do differently. And so really, Australis was around looking to try and implement that. So t- t- okay. That was the opportunity. T- tell me about that. So $1.8 billion. So you're, you're a wealthy man now, are you? Is it your company? Um, we, uh, I mean, obviously, management certainly did well out of that. It's fair to say um, our CEO became chairman. Uh, I was the technical director at, uh, at Aurora, and I've moved into the CEO position. But effectively, the management team have transitioned across, broadly because we saw an opportunity. It's fair to say we put a lot of our own money into this. We, we ran the company as a private company for the first two years while we were looking for the asset and looking for opportunities. And we've participated in raises um, along the way uh, and contributed to the equity of the company throughout its journey. So why have, why have you gone public if you made all this money? Um, it's access to market. We obviously had a strong following after the success of Aurora. Um, unconventional players do require capital for development and both for acquiring them. We think because of where the market was back in 2014, the timing in many ways was perfect for Australis to acquire the assets on a very cheap basis, which we were able to do. And we're looking to ride the cycle that's underway at present to try and take advantage of. Okay, so I, I get the contrarian company positioning thing, but again, I just want to stick in this money side. How much money did the management put into this company and does it currently hold as an equity position? So right now, uh, management hold just a little bit over 10% in the company. And to date, um, it would be somewhere in the region of 11 to $12 million that we put in of our own money um, over the journey. Um, most of that has been at market prices again. So we've participated in the pre-IPO, in the IPO, and in subsequent raises, and have been contributing since, as well as funding the company for those first two years. Right, okay. So you've gone public in 2016. I mean, tough markets still. And I get the contrarian yep. positioning, but there must have been times there where you're thinking, oh, boy, this is this is tough. This is, this is going to be problematic. Well, I mean, the, the, the reality, of course, is that the timing for the ultimate cycle is not within our control. So we were very careful in choosing an asset base that gave us the flexibility to manage that time frame. So again, it was part of the strategy that was laid out prior to the IPO and in the original documentation was to retain a level of flexibility in terms of the asset, revenue out of the asset, and to manage our own costs so that whilst it is painful and it's painful to see the share price where it is today, we don't think it's reflective of underlying value. Ultimately, the company is largely self-sufficient, and therefore, um, you know, they're, they're cycles we can run with and wear. Right, but you were able to raise just over ten million bucks uh, recently, earlier we this did. month, yeah. I think, uh, which suggests to you, I suspect, that you think the market is is recovering. I mean, price of oil is recovering. Um, was that an easy raise? Still well supported. Yes, um, you know, we were oversubscribed for both the raise. We've actually just closed out an SPP today, so that was obviously positive as well. So we've had a lot of interest. I think. There's a cycle occurring at the moment within the oil industry, which is generating interest. And if you look at the company in my opening statement, today the company sits on 170 million barrels recoverable as a mid-case estimate from our existing asset. That's not to be discovered. That's there in the ground waiting to be developed. 
If you look at that intrinsic value of the company today, the price at which we raise the capital, it's effectively equivalent to the value of the existing production. In other words, there's no value ascribed at present to that future inventory of wells. And that's really what around the upside of the company sits. And, and why would they not be ascribing any value to that? Is it because the cost of getting out of the ground? No, I, I think it's a question, again, of cycles. I think it's a question of timing. Um, for us, it's the last step in the strategy that we laid out. And we think those elements are now starting to come together, which gives us the opportunity. Right. OK, so I guess we better get stuck into the business plan. So I, I get where you've kind of yeah. come from. Um, some pretty big numbers in there, um, which I guess you want people to be, be focused on, your ability to create companies of a meaningful size. But that was about yep. timing. Um, you've got to time this right too, because at whatever you are, 62 million market cap today, just having just raised just over 10 million bucks, you're, you guys, you management team, you're underwater as well right now. You need this to work. Probably. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think we're still committed to what we're doing. We still believe the asset has the same intrinsic value, and hence we participated pro rata in this raise as well. Okay. Um, and uh, as you're right, it's timing, Matt. It always is. Um, if you have a quality asset, it's then a question of um, uh, of getting your timing right, both the in and the out. And we feel like the market's now moving to a point that we have that opportunity. Okay, so let's talk about the business plan. So, what are you setting out today? Is that a cookie cutter approach? I mean, can you can you be that glib? No, I, of course you can't. Um, I mean, you can retain elements associated with what we did last time, but everything has to be um, uh, obviously tailored to suit circumstances. So when we set out to do this, the original intention was to secure a material, unconventional play. And the differentiator last time for Aurora was reservoir quality. We wanted to make sure that we were in the good rock. These plays are thought of as relatively uniform, and they're not. There's variations in geology which drive well performance, drive well economics. And getting into the right part of the play last time was important, and equally important this time. The other thing that is absolutely key is getting in on a low cost base. We did it last time because we were the first ones there. We've done it this time because a series of circumstances created the opportunity for us. This play has already been looked at by some of the bigger companies, and most of them actually drilled a few wells and left. They had better places to deploy capital. The few companies that were left back in 2014 when the Tuscaloosa Marine Shell, which is the play that we're in today, was being appraised, they actually delineated out a relatively small part of the play that actually works it gets consistent results. They're as good from a productivity and economic perspective as the old wells we had in Aurora. And they were all in the play and ready to go in 2014 when the oil price crashed. Every single one of them went bankrupt, went through chapter 11, and the play was left in disarray. What we've done is piggybacked off the $1.2 billion they'd spent to date, delineating out this relatively small part of the play where the subsurface characteristics come together and we've been able to enter that for cents per barrel in the ground. So yes, we've been contrarian, but it's on the back of empirical data. All of the wells have been on production for three or four years when we made our initial entry, and today they've all been on production for six or seven years. So we know what they're going to do. We know how they're going to behave, and we've just gone against the flow somewhat. When everybody else was looking at the three main plays in the US unconventionally, we decided value wasn't there. Quality was, but entry costs were prohibitive, and hence, we, we we looked for alternatives. When we saw the TMS, it ticked all of the boxes that we were looking for. 
So, I mean, some of the some of the lessons learnt there um, from you know the last cycle were that a lot of these you know we've, we've seen the, the new, and we'll probably discuss it later the, the, the shale play and the, you know the influence of that in the marketplace. Um, a lot of companies going bust, extending themselves, leveraging themselves, burdening themselves with debt to try and get these things. Um, you know, going and hoping for a return of hundred dollar oil, um, it's it's not a very good way to run a business. And the U.S. has you know seen seen a lot of damage, um, you know, in the oil and gas sector specifically. How are you, sixty two million market cap company with how much cash have you got today? Then after this race, uh, about fourteen million dollars. Right. So how do you, as a small company, go about planning? I get the hundred thousand acres. Except was hundred thousand acres? I believe you told me. Yeah, hundred and seven. Yeah, hundred and seven thousand acres. Okay, that's that's an opportunity. It's also a liability if you approach it the wrong way, right? So you've got to spend your money wisely and frugally. So what are the less, what are the good things that you can pull from your previous experience at Aurora in terms of how you start to um, you know apply that cash across your portfolio today? Yeah. So the, the, the advantage that Aurora had is that it was in a play at a time when that play was exciting. It was desirable by, for lots of people. And we were able to bring in partners who carried us on programs of work. So initially, we were not putting capital to work. We were carried on a program, generated revenue for us, and we were able to recycle that revenue. So that's the first thing, is that um, Australis was never intending to develop the 400 plus net locations we carry today within the play. This was around deliberately building an asset base that would be desirable for a larger um, US unconventional player whose choices were limited. They were either prohibitively expensive or as a play, and this isn't well understood in the US, the unconventional market in the US is becoming more mature. I'm not sure if if your listeners are aware, but 85% of all of the unconventional oil in the US actually comes from only three players. Three players are called the Eagleford, the Barkin, and the Permian. Two of those plays, the Barkin and the Eagleford, are now mature. There are very few remaining high-quality future locations left within those plays. If you're not already in them, your opportunities for entry are becoming quite limited. Within the Permian, which will be the play that all of your listeners will have heard of and people talk about, it is a significant um, area and a significant inventory of future locations. But there have been massive consolidations take place during the course of 2020. The low oil price helped delineate out the play and $42 billion worth of transactions just in the last six months. And that's consolidation. Over 65% of that play is now held by the top 10 participants. And they're all on exactly the journey you were just talking about. They're being relatively cautious in terms of their development. They're hoarding the acreage that they've got. For everybody else, their opportunities are limited. When I compare the economics and the productivity of a well drilled within the Tuscaloosa Marine Shale to one in the better parts of the Permian, they're as good, if not better. And we control that. So when you talk about how we're going to spend capital, it's not around developing wells. It's around maintaining that strategic control on the asset, having revenue and income out of our existing production, which manages all of our costs, meets all of our obligations. It's allowing us to control that asset until the time that we bring in a bigger partner. And um, you know, we've, we've been patient and we've been waiting and nobody foresaw what's happened in the last 12 months. And that's been a little blip along the railway, along the road. But interestingly, we made an operating profit in every quarter of 2020. We've got a good underlying asset as well. 
We paid down debt. We did all the things that we needed to do when times were tough. And we now have cash in order to maintain and secure the asset um, such that we're in a good position when we start talking to partners who are being driven to come and look at alternative plays. Being contrarian is great, but you need some drivers. You need some external reasons for people to come and look at your contrarian asset. And they are starting to come to bear. When the scrutiny starts, then we're confident that the empirical data very much supports the, 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 the hypothesis that we've got. We can come stand up next to anybody in alternatives. Okay, so you've got some some production, which again we'll talk about in a sec. Um, but you're not you see you're not an oil producer. That's not your model. How do you describe yourself then? It's a really good question, Matt. So sometimes to shareholders, we actually describe ourselves as an oil and gas asset management company. Yes, we produce oil and gas. Yes, we can drill wells and put holes in the ground. But that's not what we're about. We're about taking what was a distressed asset at a low cost, repackaging it being self-sufficient, waiting for the market to come to us. And then at that point, we get to deliver it. And at that point, then the upside becomes significant. Yeah, okay. I think that's interesting. It's not clear from the question sent through to us that everyone understands that. They expect you to be spouting oil every day of the week, it seems. Well, and you sure. haven't been. So it's a, that's the problem. Look, well, no, no, no. We, I, we do, and the wells are productive. But that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what we're trying to get done. No. Okay. Fine. Well, look, that, that's re that's really clear. Um, what price of oil today is uh, sixty one. I think when I last looked, sixty one dollars for WTI. West Texas. Okay, sixty one okay. um, for wells of your, the type that you you are um, talking about. I mean, again, are they shallow, deep? What's the cost of a well? What's the IRR or the, or the, and, and the net back yeah. on something like that? Okay, so when we talk about an average well, the first thing I'll make, and, and I just want to caveat what I'm going to say to you, is that all of these plays get better with time. If you look at the, that, the very first well we drilled as Aurora last time, then it probably cost us north of $20 million. Today, they're putting wells in the same ground, exactly the same as we were doing back in 2007, for around about 4 or $5 million. So they've drilled 20,000 wells in the meantime, so they've had a bit of practice to get better at it. And all of these plays will improve with time. And the TMS will be no different. We refer to it, Tuscaloosa Marine Shale is a bit of a mouthful, so we shorten it and refer to it as the TMS. So to come back to your question, um, as we stand today, um, we produce about 600,000 barrels out of each well that gets drilled in the ground. We're able to sell that crude at a premium to WTI. We're close to infrastructure. So in actual fact, the refineries buy our crude. It's a light, sweet crude that they like to spike pipeline volumes with. It's particularly attractive to them. So we sell at a premium. Um, last year was a bit of an anomaly. It was still a premium through the year. But for instance, 2019, we were $5.60 premium to WTI on average through the year. So that's a 10% that's a uplift on pricing. So that, that's valuable to us. In terms of cost, we're able to put wells in the ground at the moment for about a $10 million cost. Now, $10 million is to drill the well, to complete it or frack it in unconventional parlance, to put on all of the nuts and bolts that are required for production, the surface facilities, and then the initial part of getting the well going as well. So it's a full life cycle cost, if you like. That generates today at a $55 oil price, IRRs in the region of about 42%. So these are, you know, these are good returning. So if we were drilling wells today and putting money to work to your original question, whether we're doing it or somebody else, they're making good returns on those sorts of prices and that sort of cost base. But this is the start point. All of these wells get cheaper, again, as we get better at them. And at the moment, all of the 
um, um, the technology that's being applied, particularly on the completion side, is actually 2014 vintage. And there's also good reasons for that. But all of the evolution of the industry over the last six years during the challenging times that you refer to, none of that has yet been applied in a completion sense to the TMS. Now, we don't know what it's going to achieve, but certainly if we're, if we're achieving that as a base case based on technology from six years ago, then we certainly see it as significant upside still to, to how the play will perform over time. Okay, and again, just for generalists coming in here and people perhaps haven't looked at oil for the last five years for obvious reasons, um, the high API, the lighter, sweeter uh, oil gets a premium Y. Right, so most of the crude that gets produced unconventionally in the US is actually a condensate. It means that it's got a lot of gas associated with it. And it's very different to the crude that all of the refineries are actually set up for to deal with in the US. What we produce is actually an oil. It's um, 39 to 40 degree API. And that oil is much more desirable. It fits much better within the input portfolio that the refineries are set up. Somewhat ironically, actually for Saudi Arabian crude, which obviously historically has been imported in huge quantities into the US prior to the unconventional space. But it's always been a challenge for the unconventional industry is that the crude that they produce um, is actually not ideal for US um, terminals and refineries, which is why these days a lot of it's actually exported. Right. Also easier to get out of the ground. So the lower the API, the thicker, more syrupy. Someone described it to me as sure. being so, uh, a bit you, harder you to get out of the, the other end of the range. Yeah. I'll become an engineer just quickly. So Excellent. we produce a 40 degrees API. Oil can be produced, and you're right, you can become very thick and viscous down at 20 degrees API. In actual fact, most unconventional is at the other end of the range up here. It's at 50 or 55 degrees API. And there's a sweet spot in that center point, which is exactly where the crude that we produce actually lies. And that's a distinct advantage for us. As, uh, sorry to interrupt the engineer mode, um, but in terms yeah, of I have to be careful not to get carried away. <laughs> in terms of managing fields like that, obviously you know putting a well here and going, oh look, we, we found oil in there. You've got to manage fields um, properly. So, is this how you're spending your money? Just trying to understand a little bit more about how the TMS works and how to optimize, how to reduce costs to be able to pass on to, as you say, either strategic partners or potential. Uh, acquirers of, of the TMS? Uh, again, really good question. So um, one of the other things we've been doing over the course of the last seven years is aggregating all of the data and all of the information that the $1.2 billion was spent acquiring. There's no point in us relearning lessons that have been learned the hard way historically. So absolutely, are we working the data? Are we uh, constantly pooling and putting it into a form that's immediately digestible for a partner? Absolutely. That's been a focus for what we're doing. The money that we're spending right now is really around maintaining our lease position. Now, this is a, uh, something that's quite unique to the US. Most countries in the world, there are sovereign rights to the hydrocarbons and to the minerals, et cetera, in the ground. In the US, they're typically privately owned. So we do a deal often with the surface landowner for access to the underlying mineral rights. Every time you drill a well, a unit is formed around that well, and all the acreage within inside that unit, all of the leases that you hold, the mineral rights, are actually deemed as held by production, as long as that well is on production. And these typically have 30-year lives, then our acreage is deemed as HBP, which is something that you'll see in our reports and in other unconventional players. About a third of our acreage with our existing production is already held by production. So we can drill other wells next to those in the future, 
and we've got a long time to be able to do that. The other acreage is leased. The other acreage, we lease the rights to go and drill on that acreage, and we're granted those rights for a period of time under the, the contract that's put in place. And some of that stuff um, uh, needs constant uh, maintenance. And we're not necessarily trying to maintain a total acreage. This is more around within that delineated area, making sure we maintain control, make sure there are no gaps that appear that somebody can come in and take advantage of. And we'll be using a modest amount of the capital that we raised to make sure that we keep our foot on this. And anybody that wants to get into the TMS has to come and talk to Australis. Okay. Buying up land packages, ideally contiguous land packages, important to you. There's a cost, I understand that. Um, so again, it comes back to the, the timing component. You've got to have a view on the current market uh, coming back in time because that's expensive. You know, you're raising money just to hold land, to not really do too much to it in the hope that a strategic partner comes in and goes, do you know what? I think now's the time we now start splashing the cash, raising money, however they raise it, hopefully not making the mistakes of before and you know, walk up and have a conversation with you. So what is, what's your thought on the recovery of the oil market as we see it today? I mean, the question is multi-layered. And, and, and I, I, I mean, I'm not gonna to pretend to be an expert and call each layer of that. Within the US and um, more broadly, obviously demand post COVID is being um, anticipated to increase through the recovery. And we've seen that manifest itself ahead of the curve a little, obviously, with the oil price changes that have uh, uh, come about over the course of the last month or two. Within the US more specifically, there are, um, there, there are probably two competing elements in this at the moment. There's the change of politics and the, the, the Democrats now getting in, and maybe their emphasis on renewables and so forth. But by the same token, there is a huge strategic imperative for the US to maintain the independence that is now generated through the unconventional um, uh, contribution to US oil production. And no US government wants to lose that. One of the advantages that we have on our acreage, Matt, is that none of our acreage is federal leases. They're the leases that the Democrats at the moment are looking to try and influence activity levels on. So it means that their influence on us specifically is actually negligible or, or, or zero, as we say. By influence, you mean um, restrict? Yeah, so restrict access, restrict permitting, maybe impose additional requirements in terms of how they go about. They're talking about renegotiating the value of those um, and the royalty payments, et cetera. So none of, the, all of we're outside of all of that. We don't get involved in all of that, which we actually see as another plus for this play as we think about its strategic value to a third party. I talked before about the maturity of the U.S., and you've got a lot of uh, unconventional players now in the U.S. who didn't take part in that consolidation, whose inventory within those other more mature oil plays is starting to get to the end of its life. And for them, their opportunities become limited. For them, they're going to have to start to look elsewhere. And we're seeing it already. We're already seeing the levels of interest in terms of what we're doing start to go up. We start to see other people getting active in the play. It's on the edges because we control the central part. But just in the, in the last few months, we've had a, a, a private equity firm come in, take a large position, and permit its first TMS well. And as I go back to the story I was relaying earlier about Aurora, the key catalyst in this is getting people busy. It's getting activity going, profile of the play raised, people coming to understand exactly what makes it tick and its comparisons. And under those circumstances, we represent the opportunity of a ready-made development on a plate. And they just don't exist at the moment in the US. You're right, management of how you develop these plays is really important. 
Normally it's highly competitive, fragmented acreage, lots of wells being drilled next to each other, trying to drain each other's oil. All of those things normally occur. Because we've done this uncompetitively, we've got a large contiguous acreage position. We control it. We already know how the wells are going to produce, so we know what the spacing needs to be, which often isn't known when the plays are being developed in a melee and um, in a frenzy. And it's possible on our play to actually start on one side and develop it as you would want to in a systematic, logical fashion across to the other. That just doesn't exist anymore in the US. You need to understand that unconventional exploration is a bit of a misnomer. Um, we've always known where these unconventional plays were. It was the technology to access them that's actually come about. So today, opportunities to go and find new plays become very, very limited. Again, we've got our foot on one that's actually gone through that full cycle already, um, and we've been able to do so at sense of a barrel in the ground, and that creates deal space. That creates the opportunity. So, but how long, I guess the question I'm trying to get at is, how long do you expect to be waiting to be able to deliver on your exit strategy? I, I get like you, you mentioned the private equity firms like come in and they're they're in the TMS. And I mean that doesn't fill me full of confidence in terms of their ability to you know, get producing. I've seen that in, in other spaces where they they're just oh. they're just contrarian and they think they know what they're, they think they've got a deal, but it doesn't actually convert into a good business. But it, what it does tell me, money flow, money flow Correct. is looking at this, and that's fascinating to me because. You know, forget the bizarre structuring that they may have done in the past and they may do in the future. It depends that eyes are on it and that helps with liquidity. So th I think that's interesting to me. Uh, it's act it comes back to activity, which obviously is driven by, by money flow, absolutely. So for us, it's around profile. How long is it going to take? Um, uh, you know, um, if we hadn't have gone through COVID, then I think we'd be doing something by now because all the fundamentals are there. And I think in a very ironic way, COVID may actually accelerate this. Why? Because historically, everybody followed the money and the money was in the Permian. Because of what's gone on in the last 12 months, the delineation of the Permian has accelerated and the consolidation means it's now in a few people's hands and they're not going to let the big companies, they're not going to let go of it. And that then drives interest. So I, I take your point on private equity. I would add, though, private equity is always the precursor for the majors getting involved. That's just the way it works in unconventional space. So we're actually reasonably heartened to see that occurring. We're seeing mineral rights buyers getting busy. So these are companies that go in and buy those underlying mineral rights within the play. That's another great precursor to say they think something's about to happen. They get in cheaply now and take advantage of it. So we're no longer the lonely flag bearer. And um, again, we've always been confident because of the empirical data. It's been a question of timing. And we've managed the process over the course of the last few years, and we think we're, we're now well set, and it's moving in the right direction. Is it a month? Is it six months? I don't know. Um, our experience would show when it does happen, it will happen very quickly. So, um, I mean, there is an opportunity now, and I think that's why the raise was well supported. Yeah, I, mean, I remember this back in 2013 and 14, we were being asked for money for these consolidation plays, you know, in Eagleford and um, and Eagleford. Uh, uh, but further, further to the east, I'm not quite sure it was Cotton Valley we were looking at, I remember. Um, yeah, so, Hainesville, Cotton Valley. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I'm, I'm glad we didn't because obviously what, what followed with Shell Gas, et cetera. But um, it's, 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 an, it's interesting timing at the moment. I was hoping you did have an answer as to when it's come back because, you know, otherwise, you know, I, I guess 
the reason I want to understand is like, you know, do you think you're going to need to raise more money just to hold on to the, these no. projects a little bit longer? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, again, we're self-sufficient in terms of all our costs. The money we've got will go a long way now in terms of what we're saying. Let me give you some, some numbers because they always help. So your entry into the Eaglefoot that you would have looked back in 2014, it would have been at, and I guess, $20,000 an acre, $25,000 an acre. It would have been something like that. The Aurora exit was done at over $100,000 an acre. Today, even today, with everything that's gone on, transactions are occurring in the Permian at $15,000 and $20,000 and $25,000 an acre. That's your entry cost to get into Quality Rock. We're leasing today in the Permian, in the Permian, in the TMS, at $200 an acre. That's the opportunity. If the rock produces the same way, if the underlying economics are the same way, and your entry cost is done at that price point instead of this price point, that's, that's why we didn't go and do a Permian deal as Australis. It never made sense to us. The upside wasn't there. Everything had to go right to warrant the entry cost. Um, and that's why we went down the route that we did. Again, coming back to the kind of field planning component, and because um, I did mean to ask you at the time, which is in terms of decline rates um, with, the, with this type of oil, with this type of rock, I mean, what are you seeing or what have you seen with the, the projects, that, that, the wells that you have got? So all unconventional wells decline quickly. It's their very nature in terms of the rock quality, and the TMS is no different. But neither is it any more or less than the other better parts of the other place. Within our presentational material, we provide comparisons. We look at 12-month decline rates and we look at 60-month decline rates. And these wells pay out well within that 60-month period. And again, we can compare ourselves to the very best parts of the Eaglehood, the very best parts of the Permian. And we're looking at very similar productivity profiles within the same time frame, often actually better. I'll be specific. I'm talking about oil productivity. Often, um, you know, these plays are uh, talked to in terms of BOEs barrels of oil equivalent, and that includes an allocation for NGLs, natural gas liquids, and gas. They're done at conversion rates that are based on energy. They're not based on value. And in value, it's all about the oil. It's all about the oil if you're in an oil play. The rest of it all looks good on numbers. We produce 95% oil. That's a huge, um, as a fraction of our hydrocarbons to surface. By comparison, the Permian produces 40 to 60% oil. So it's a huge difference in terms of the composition and hence the value. Okay, so let's talk about um, the strategic partners or people that you would be hoping to talk to. What, again, experience to bear, please, here is, you know, uh, when I asked about NetBack earlier and you didn't answer because obviously lots of moving parts there, but what do they need to see to get interest to start placing bets, to start investing in projects, yours is a modest project today, but the potential is mm -hmm. is, is significant for them. So, what 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 type of partner are you looking for, and what would they need to be seeing in terms of the economics of this thing? I think the economics are there today. As I said, we talked about the IRRs um, uh, and the netbacks. Um, they range for anything on a ten million dollar investment, anything from sort of four to eight, depending on the high side and how you want to put the variables into them. So, I mean, they're good solid returns. And bear in mind that uniquely to unconventional plays, unlike hard rock, unlike conventional oil and gas, you don't put all your capital up front. This is an incremental business. In principle, every well you drill is a separate investment decision. And therefore, you can accelerate or slow down as you see fit. And in many ways, that's the advantage. You don't have to be captive of putting 
a billion dollars upfront to develop a play and then captive to the subsequent oil price, you can choose and pick when you go through that development program. So that's a, a matter of fact, a unusual and distinct advantage uh, of unconventional plays. Which you would do. You might you might decide to do that if you could access the capital of the market, right? But a big guy is not going to want to do that. So what are they looking for? So no, a, a big guy these days, I think, is being driven more down that route. Historically, they haven't. Again, take our experience. Marathon put 18 rigs to work within six months of taking over 50% of our acreage. They went mad. They went um, really hard. Why? The NPV of the project has accelerated. The more money you throw at it, the quicker you develop that field, the more the NPV of the whole development is worth. Today, when these companies are under duress from the shareholders to generate return, it's a much more incremental business. And again, the TMS is uniquely set up to allow a company to come and do this, which we think will be attractive. It gives them flexibility in terms of deployment of capital, the ability to control that capital spend profile. It comes in terms of the subsurface. It comes in terms of the surface setup that we have and also the field rules. And I won't go into all because it gets very detailed, but there are distinct advantages that we have. So what are they looking for? They're looking for one, underlying base case economics. Two, in our case, they're looking for a profile as to how this could improve. What do they think they could bring to bear? lower costs, improvement in terms of technology, et cetera. Where can this play go to? And then the third element for us, obviously, is that they've got to get the driver to come and do it. If they've got inventory within their existing portfolios, then they're not going to, particularly at this time when they have to be cautious. The final point to make, Matt, of course, is that their entry cost into this doesn't have to be high. We're not looking to make our money on the entry. We're looking to make our money on the value lift associated with the work that they do. And for us, that's absolutely what we did at Aurora. And that's where there is a cookie cutter element to this, bringing in the right partner. What do they look like? They can be a range of things. We've got a big position and we control it. So we can take and bring in a smaller partner that wants to put a modest amount of work, money to work and put them in a small area and get them busy. Or we bring in one of the big guys. We take a non-operator position. We've shown that we can make that work in the past and we hand the keys over and they look to develop the play. And we can be flexible. It can be a mix and match. It's a big enough play to allow us to do that. The final point to make in, in, in from that side of the story is that, particularly for one of the bigger guys, is that whilst we do control the acreage we hold, there's a lot more to be had. If somebody came in and had deeper pockets than us to go leasing, we think we could probably double the size of the position that we have. And if you're moving to a 300 million barrel recoverable resource estimate, that's material enough for any of the US mid-caps. Okay, e economic recoverable is good. Um, final question, so who are you talking to at the moment then? Well, obviously, we have discussions all the time. I, I, I can't go into the details. Um, go on. It's but fine. It's, a range. It's, it's a range of um, some of them are financial institutions that like the strategy and want to get on board with the strategy. It's a range of smaller companies, and often they are PE-backed. They're looking for somewhere to put some money to work to either realize a return on that money or join the strategy. And these days, for the first time for a while, I'd have to admit, then we're actually talking to some of those more household names. Okay. So uh, who's interested? All of the above. Is, there isn't are, they, are, they, are you sitting like here? Here, here we've created a a, um, a due diligence uh, room for you. Go and have a look, or you're just kind of vaguely. I tell you what, when we get to X point, let's no. chat some more. I mean, how no. serious are these conversations? No, 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 no we're having no um, the conversations, and we've been open about this with the market. So there's nothing we haven't said. We're open to having discussions, and we have had and are having discussions. Absolutely. 
Are we going to go and do the first deal that comes across the table? Not necessarily. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're achieving our strategic objectives in particular. So that's still important to us. Um, but the, the, the market sentiment in the US, as you would expect, is changing. That is something we've been waiting for, both actually pre-COVID and post-COVID now. And it, it, the, we feel very comfortable in terms of where we sit, both in the short and the medium term. And we're convinced we've got a valuable asset. Okay. So sit in your hands, wait for the market to recover a little bit more, and then maybe re-engage uh, with different types of conversations. No. We're having conversations now. Um, the, the, we, we don't have to sit on our hands at all. We're having conversations now. The opportunity is there. And as I said to you early on, it's about timing. The timing of this is always important. The timing is now. That's the opportunity. Um, we, our share price today reflects not a cent associated with 170 million barrels. That will change immediately following a deal. Ian, appreciate your time today. Stay in touch. I'm intrigued. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Matt, and thank you for your listeners. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.